Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. What happens when you eliminate rules, policies, and procedures? Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Cruz. Welcome to the LeadX Show, where we help you to stand out and to get ahead. Can you tell I'm extra excited today? Because it is a special show. I'll be chatting with one of the giants of Silicon Valley. She's not a tech founder, she's not a CEO, but she's someone who has shaped the culture of numerous companies, including several of my own. But first, I'm excited to share with you that we are just wrapping up our new video-based courses. I just finished one-on-one meetings. Tara has just finished effective business writing and business grammar. We're back hard at work on goal setting for yourself, goal setting for your teams, coaching, delegation, and more. All of these courses we're adding in for free to the LeadX Academy at leadx.org. The LeadX Academy has dozens of these courses to make you a better leader, to make you more productive for a ridiculously low monthly fee, like seriously, like the price of a smoothie kind of fee. Better than an MBA program, better than lynda.com, and you can check it out. You can get access to all of it for free for three days. Why wouldn't you check it out? Leadx.org. And our quote of the day, my first company, Pure Software, was exciting and innovative in the first few years and bureaucratic and painful in the last few before it got acquired. The problem was we tried to systematize everything and set up perfect procedures. That comes from Reed Hastings, CEO of Netflix. Did you like my dramatic reading there? I have no idea what Reed sounds like. I should learn how to do impressions probably if I'm gonna be reading their quotes. The Netflix culture deck. If you don't know what that is, it is a 124 page PowerPoint presentation, which has been viewed over 13 million times. This is probably (laughs) the only PowerPoint presentation that has ever been viewed. 13 million times. Sheryl Sandberg has called it the most important document ever to come out of Silicon Valley. Our guest today co-created that presentation with Netflix CEO Reed Hastings, and more importantly, she shaped the unusual no-rules culture that enabled Netflix to thrive during her 14 years as chief talent officer. She is one of my business heroes. This culture deck has shaped the culture of LeadX and my previous companies, Axiom, ACI, used it at Conexa. Her new book is powerful, building a culture of freedom and responsibility. She shares what she learned at Netflix and teaches leaders how to build their own high-performance culture that can meet the challenges of today's rapid pace of change. Our guest is Patty McCord. Patty, welcome to the LeadX Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about your new book in just a minute, but I always ask our guests the same first question. I believe failures are stepping stones. There's no win or lose, only win or learn. So I'm hoping you will share some painful failure of yours so that we can learn from your experience. When I worked at Sun Microsystems a long time ago, I uh, ran diversity programs, and part of what I got to do was I got to present to the executive staff once a quarter. So I had to look at our numbers, a lot of affirmative action stuff and the work that we were doing, 
around diversity. And I thought I was very young in my career. It was a big, big deal for me to go into e-staff. And so I thought, well, I'm kind of buddies with all these guys. And Scott McNeely, the CEO, sent some email out that I thought was bullshit. So I wrote him this big, long response, you know, and I thought, there we go. I just said it to him, you know, talking power to the man. <laughs> Somebody came down and said, Scott sent me to talk to you directly. I'm like, oh, really? What What did Scott have to say? And they're like, shut up. <laughs> he wasn't sending a compliment. He wasn't sending a compliment. And so I learned to A, be circumspect. And, you know, honestly... I've used that lesson sometimes when I coach people on how to have a difficult conversation with somebody, I say, get mad at them on email. I mean, get to your, go to your computer and just type, use every swear word. Don't worry about <laughs> punctuation. Just say what the hell you mean. But instead of pressing send, <laughs> press print ah. and then print it. I tell them, here are the instructions. You have to follow them carefully. You have to take that folded in half and put it in a drawer. It must cure for 24 hours. <laughs> it's very important, <laughs> the curing period. Then after 24 hours, remove the piece of paper, open it up and take a black Sharpie and, <laughs> and exercise, exit out all of the emotive words, <laughs> all the emotion. Love that. Love that. <laughs> you know, you know, I F and think you <laughs> are the right. It's take it all out. I'm like, cause you're, you have an issue. Yeah. You're mad about something, but you need to get to what it is you're mad about, not how mad you are. So that's, that's my learning from that one. That's a, that's a great summary. You know, get at the issue that, that triggered it, but not expressing how how mad you are i like that difference yeah i mean it's important to do that because you because you're mad right right right, but right. it's a it's a matter of turning that into like a productive dialogue I, I just got off the phone this morning with a reporter who was sort of saying you know what's hr's role in the new me too movement mm. and you know shouldn't hr be doing a better job policing I'm like, oh, God, you know, like you either you finally get away from being mom and now you're the police again. Right. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to have that HRs in the room. Don't say anything. And that's just a horrible place to be. And I told somebody else a couple of weeks ago about um, the letter from the woman at Uber. Yeah. Uh, this is another reporter who called and said. Aren't you, I bet Silicon Valley companies are afraid their employees are going to go rogue and go out on the Internet and start voicing these issues that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> like, go rogue? Is that what you call participating in social media, which we all right, do? Right, right, right. Right? Like, so they're all rogue right. already. Um, they said, you know, the reason why people do that is they don't have anybody in their company that they feel like they can trust. Mm. to go say, hey, I got to tell you what happened to me and that that person's not only going to listen, but say, wow, how can I help you have that conversation with that person so they know it's wrong? And B, um, you know, how are we going to, depending on the severity of what you're telling me, what are we going to do about this? Right, right. Makes a lot of sense. I always ask our guests also this follow-up question around we, a lot of our listeners for the LeadX show are younger, newer in their career. And we're going to dive deep into some talent management stuff from your book. But in general, you know, what advice would you give to a first-time manager who, you know, she wants to grow into a great leader? What advice do, do you give her when she's starting out? Learn how to set context for people well. 
that's probably the most effective leadership trait that I've ever seen, which is the more you see yourself as a teacher rather than teller or permission giver, the more effective your team will be. So, and, and team, not family, right? Because, you know, I'll tell you, I've, I've learned so much since I left Netflix from professional coaches mm. because it's in the book, the one about Scott Bowman, the um, NHL, National Hockey League superstar coach, about how he gives people feedback. You know, every 10 games, he sits them down and, and they go, he writes a review, you know, what, uh, some feedback and they write some feedback and they get feedback from their fellow players and they look at the next, you know, the 10 teams that they're playing in the next 10 games and they put together a plan and it has a time frame and it has specifics. So every person is working on what they're going, how they're going to be a productive member of the team. And he does that every 10 games for every player in the, in the team. And at the end of that interview, somebody said, we know you hate the annual performance review. What would you do differently? And I said, what he said. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so the, the idea of context is really, really important. Who are our competitors? Where are we at? How do you, let me go through the PNL with you and let you understand how the financials work before we talk about budget for your department. Right. Right. Um, how do we understand what, what are we feedback are we getting from our customers? Who are they? How do we know them? Uh, how do we stay in touch with them? How do we, you know, so that involvement that, that I learned every time I moved up my career ladder, it was like, wow, I knew something I didn't know before. Can I go back and tell my team? Right, <laughs> right. Hey, you guys, look, at, I just figured out how this works. It's incredible, right? So this constant, um, just keeping people informed. The other thing that early stage managers don't do very well is they don't predict and estimate very well because you kind of don't know. But the better you can get at putting time wrappers on things, the more effective you'll be. That's great. Because otherwise, you know, when people say, you know, someday, then to five people, one of them thinks it's tomorrow afternoon. The other one thinks it's not ever going to happen. Right, right. <laughs> and if you mean by the end of the year, then everybody's on the same page. That's great. And I, I kind of have an ear for language. I love that, you know, um, be a teacher, not a teller. Mm -hmm. And this idea of coach, I've often said, I wish all the business cards that had people's titles as manager in it, you cross it off and put coach and it would Me just cha change so much about what, what, what's Me going too. on. Me too. You know, I, I say there's only one job of management. Here it is. It's in one sentence. You ready? Build a great, great team that does amazing work on time with quality and serves customers. Done. Love it. There it is That's in a it. sentence. That's it. You know, we don't need to like make everybody feel good. Right, right. That's right. Because because sometimes, you know, I, I tell HR people sometimes, especially the ones that tell me that their job is to create employee happiness, which kind of nauseates me a little bit. I say, you know, go find five successful people in your company and ask them to tell you about a time that they felt that they were doing great work that mattered, right? That they they did something that really moved the business forward. Just describe that to me. And they will always describe something hard. Right. Not necessarily happy or stress-free or work-life balance. They won't say craft beers and macadamia nuts. <laughs> they're going to say, you know, I mean, it might, they may have been involved, but they're going to talk about, yeah, the hard, hard things that they did with, you know, when you didn't think you could do it. And in your book, you do, it was a, a question I was going to come to, but we'll, we'll transition to it now. 
you take a few swipes at employee engagement and employee engagement is a is a topic I've written a lot about. I speak a lot about, <laughs> but I don't think we're going to be so far off the mark because right. I say, you know, my definition when I talk about engagement is the emotional commitment we have to our organization and its goals. It's not happiness. Yeah. It's not satisfaction. It's not lack of stress yep. or any of those kinds of things. And you do concede that there's some research that seems like if we care about our work, we are likely to do, you know, perform better, sell a little more service, all that kind of stuff. I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think all those things are true. The, the thing I disagree with pretty fundamentally is the language that we use that no one else speaks. And engagement's one of those words, mm. right? So, it, you know, and when you talk about it that way, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I absolutely agree with you. But, you know, it's like the word culture, or, right? Which is, does culture mean I want to have a craft beer and macadamia nuts with you? Right. Or is culture how we behave? And is engagement like, you know, when I talk to women's groups, I say, look, when your company talks about engagement, they didn't put a ring on it. <laughs> okay, right. that, that kind of engagement, right. that's not the kind I'm talking about. <laughs> and oh, by the way, when you go interview with another company to figure out what you're worth, which is the only way to figure out what you're worth, mm -hmm. not where you're at in your company's salary mm -hmm. range, then that's not cheating on your husband. Remember, it's not you're not engaged, right? <laughs> well, they're so, only yeah. they were only looking anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it's a really that we're switching subjects again. Yeah. But and for your folks starting out early in their career, don't be lulled and seduced by your first company that you work at that you like. I've landed. This is it. I don't have to worry about my career anymore. Right. You know, I'm just going to be here because they told me in my little startup that there's going to be room for me to grow forever. Mm. So they ran out of money. Right. <laughs> or until somebody bought them or until, you know, they switched business models or there's no guarantees. So the skill of interviewing is a really important one to keep doing. And the other thing about interviewing is it, it's really helpful to tell a stranger what it is you want and what you're great at, because you tend to develop a relationship with your manager over time where you tell them what they want to hear or, mm -hmm. you know, it's different, right, yeah. than telling a stranger. The other thing about interviewing is I found interviewing to be particularly helpful when you're unhappy, mm. not because you want to leave, because sometimes you don't know what you have. Right. 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 Sometimes you go in an interview and go, geez, it's not that bad. <laughs> Those people, I thought we were messed up. These guys are really messed up. Some of my best team members are boomerangs. They, you know, I was their first job out of college. They go, grass is greener, and they come right back. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but don't you love that? Yes, and yes, yes. I, and you get a much better employee. Oh, I, I do, and I want them to tell everybody what it was like at that competitor yeah, company. Yeah, and, and even, <laughs> you know, I remember talking to Julia Hartz. She's the CEO of Eventbrite a long time ago, years ago, and she said, you know, I hate when I talk to you because, you know, you make me think that, like, what if we're really successful eight years from now and I put my heart and soul into all these employees and you're saying they're just going to leave me? And I said, OK, let's imagine incredible success eight years from now. Right. At Eventbrite. Right. What if it was a hundred times as big, a hundred times the reach? You're going to want a company full of people who have only worked here. Yeah. Really? 
right? They won't have ever seen scale. Right. Like you're t- it's unlikely that this group of people can get you there. Right. Right. And I'm not saying they're not great people. I think they're amazing people. Right. But they're also going to some of them reach the end of the line as to what they can do that's meaningful here. And they want to be around somebody else who's going to teach them something. That's right. And if everybody is rising at the same pace, then nobody knows anything that everybody else doesn't already know. Right. That's right. That's right. Our careers are these long, wonderful journeys. I mean, I think about when I look back. You asked the first question you asked me was about mistakes, but I remember a team that I joined that was a mistake. I knew it like three days in. Mm. Like my manager said to me at the end of the first like month, you know, Patty, you have a lot of ideas. And we've had them all and they don't work. So it would be really helpful to the rest of the members of the group if you would just stop having <laughs> <laughs> Stop having these ideas. Or just keep them in there, right? Because we don't want any new ideas. Right. We do things the way we've always done them. Our job in HR at this company is to make the rules and make other people follow them. Yeah. So, you know, you need to get behind that right away and be the kind of professional we need you to be. Okay. You read my book. Ask me how well <laughs> that went over. Now, at the time, my kids were all under five mm. and I could walk to their daycare. Right. 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 I was four minutes from home. Oh, I took yeah. that job for all the right reasons, all the right reasons. And they hated me. Yeah. Right. They loved my skills, but they didn't <laughs> like me. And when I left, you know, I learned to appreciate the things they did really well. They're exceptionally good administrators. Right. Right. I mean, we talked about benefits administration all the time. And I realized that I it bores me to death. Right. right? But there are people it doesn't. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God there's those people out there. <laughs> Thank God. Well, no, I mean, I really learned, uh, you know, then when I went on to do my first startup and I was in charge of my own world, the first person I hired was one of them. Yeah, right. Right. The, the yin to my yang. Exactly. Right? That's the other. The other thing I would say to early stage managers is it's very, very tempting to hire someone who's smart and articulate and fast on their feet, and good looking, <laughs> someone just like me. <laughs> Right. And then pretty soon you look around and you go, oh, shit. Right. Now we have 30 people and they're all just like me. So we not only have group speak, but we have group think we have group politics. We have group parties. It's it's all the same. Instead of making that first hire be somebody who compliments your skill set and who's better than you. Right. That's the other. Here's the other secret. I love this one. You know, an early manager, you interview somebody and you think. God, she's incredible. Uh, Oh, my God. But she makes $20,000 a year more than me, and I can't let that happen. Mm. (laughs) Right? Because that would be unfair. So if I hire her, I'm going to have to go to HR and tell them I need $40,000 more so that I'm making more than her. All bad ideas. Right, right. You hire this amazing person, you pay whatever it takes to get her, you get twice as much work done, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and you are your team is rolling. And when it comes time for review, everyone goes, oh my God, do you realize Dave makes 
an average of $25,000 less than all his subordinates. Time for a big fat raise and promotion for that guy. Look at the team he put together. Right. Look at what they're accomplishing. He never even said anything. Well, let, let me ask a follow-up on the kind of salary uh, and hiring. From a, from a hiring manager, from an entrepreneur standpoint, I, I thought it was your book was very interesting in this. I've been influenced by companies like Basecamp or Buffer who have really transparent, open policies. And they're, and others sort of do the thing where, you know, we will pay 90% of market rate, you know, to be fair to everybody, whatever the job class is, we'll use pay scale or some service and we'll pay 90%, we'll pay 50% in cost of living, whatever it is. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, let's figure out, let's make sure rather than doing merit raises just because that get people out of whack, let's just make sure everybody's being paid market rate at whatever level. But you argue that it's not really about looking at one of these services and pegging pay. You tell the story about someone that Netflix hired that was like double, I think, what you thought was going to be paid. And you resisted it at first to your team mm -hmm. saying, we can't pay this person that much. Mm -hmm. And then you mm -hmm. turned around and said, yeah, we, we should. So how should a company, small company, think about setting pay scales as they're recruiting and trying to get these all-stars? I think young companies shouldn't worry about it one single iota. <laughs> I think young companies should worry about what they need to get done and putting the right team of people together to do it. Okay. So it's an inefficient, false sense of security to use the surveys, unless those surveys are absolutely mapping the people that you're going to hire and the people that you work with to exactly the other companies that have people doing exactly that same thing. And have you, you've seen a survey, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so they typically use generic job titles, right. and then they have some descriptors around the job titles. So the first work of the survey, so you just don't get to look at the survey. You have to map all your people to the jobs in the survey and all the people that you're going to hire to the jobs in the survey. And remember, a survey itself is in arrears. Right. Okay. It's not real time. Right. <laughs> it's right. last year what people paid these jobs on average aggregate over a number of companies. So just know that's what you're working with when you go to a survey for expertise. Right. And if you say I'm going to peg everybody to 90th percentile and half of the people in the survey you don't even have in your company, mm. then are you sure? Right. So to me, and I, there's a lot of, in that chapter about hiring and about compensation. Right. When you start with the problem that you have to solve, all hiring should be based on starting with the problem you have to solve, what it's going to take somebody to be great at solving it, what people will have done in their past that's going to lend ex expertise to solving the problem, who the other members of the team are already so that you can hire for the gap, the delta, and you know some expertise that you don't have, mm -hmm. or somebody with more experience than you don't have, or somebody who wants to join the team and learn and come up to speed quickly. Those are three different types of people, mm -hmm. right? So saying I'm going to pay everybody in the 90th percentile depends on who you end up hiring to help you solve the problem. Okay. So then when you do that, then you want to get the best person that you can to solve that problem. So the junior person who wants to come in and learn from all of your senior people isn't going to be as expensive as the person right. who knows more about it than everybody on your team, right? So that's where I'm just saying, don't get trapped in the ranges because you might overlook the right person. Right, right. And the other thing about it is, 
if you look at the person who's going to most help you solve the problem and represents the filling of a hole in your team, then you are more likely to consider someone who's not like the people you already have. Mm -hmm. Right. So it allows you to have diversity. So I don't have any problem with marking to a survey because it's, it's data. The real data you have about hiring is in your recruiting team. That's all I'm saying. I see. You're right. Don't ignore the data that's in front of your face. In the book, I also say that I used to say to Netflix employees, when a headhunter calls you, before you say no thanks, be be sure you ask how much and come tell me. Right, right, right. Because that gives me an idea of market. Get that data. So the, the example that I used in the book, I had a couple of them, but one of them was an employee who another who Google had offered twice his salary. And I went went ballistic about that. I mean, it's bullshit. I mean, he only been at the company five years. And then I realized, oh, shit. Well, he'd been at the company five years working on our personalization algorithm. Right. Which, uh, how many people in the world had done that? That would be no one. Right. You know? Yeah, and that, that was the story where you realized the fact that Google was willing to do that that is the market rate. That's, I, the, market showed, rate. that's the market rate. Right, right. Right. And the same thing was for another person coming in who made twice as much as everybody else. You know, I could have that because I'd had that conversation with about one of my employees. I could say, well, let me, does this person add two X value? Right. 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 So it's not just that they make that much. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and when you look at then the value of the position to the company, then you're more likely to be fairer about how you pay. It's how women get screwed. Well, I was going to ask, practically speaking, so it's one thing if, if someone's got twice the talent or they're a senior engineer versus a junior engineer. You've got three high level engineers roles to fill and you've got three great candidates and one says, well, I'm making 120, I'm making a buck 20 over at this company. And another one says 100. And the female candidate happens to mention that she's making 80, right? So, so many companies will be like, okay, well, we'll give you a 10% raise or 20% raise over what you're making now. So they all come in with the raise and there's this big pay gap in the same role. So how do we, as, as the hiring manager, as the, as the company, should we never ask, you know, like uh, that's getting legislated now. Like you can't ask what someone's currently making. That's being challenged in some places. Or do you go in and say, look, in this role, this is our, what we think market rate is based on all of our data. And you lead with that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. You just lead with that. And the uh, not asking people what they make, you know, it's a data point that's interesting, but I think the discipline of not asking will help us wrap our heads around a new paradigm. And that's the problem sometimes is sometimes you just got to throw out what you do and start over to think about it differently. I mean, that right. that's probably the whole point of my book. I spent all my time at Netflix around all these innovators and, you know, we made shit up. It was so fun. And I thought, how come they're having all the fun? <laughs> Right. I mean, how come I'm supposed to do things the way everybody else does it and call it best practices? You know, I don't measure anything. How do I know that what Google does is the right thing for us to do? And so that's thing one. Thing two is we don't throw anything away. An innovator throws shit away all the time. I mean, you never start with like, we're going to reinvent the way you consume video. I know. Let's make a better TV. You just wouldn't do that. Right. You throw out all the notions. And so that's why, um, 
when we innovate around management and people, some stuff we should just throw away and see if it matters. Right, right. You know, if you throw if you throw it away and it turns out like, oh my God, it's disaster, it's chaos, or it turns out that we really relied on that system, then bring it back. But sometimes you don't know until you get rid of it. And so that's how I feel about asking people about pay. Yeah. I think it would be a really smart idea, at least for a while, to stop doing it that and see if it changes our perspective. Makes sense. Because because women, you know, the example I give in the book, and yours is a, you just gave a great example. We give her 90. She's thrilled, right? Then she starts talking to her colleagues about pay because everyone does, right? Right. And she's going to find out that every other man she works with makes 125. Right, right. And she feels cheated and she feels screwed and nothing in the workplace has changed except that fact. Right. You know why she feels cheated and screwed? Because she's screwed. Yeah, it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair, right? <laughs> it's not fair. And so she's going to sit around and wait for somebody in the company to realize that and make it good. But the system will keep her down, mm. right? The example I use in the book is, Kate, let's use that example of that woman. She's 20% below market at least, right? Right. The company has a 6.5% merit increase budget with a bell curve distribution. And they realize, oh, my God, she's amazing. And she's not paid enough. We're going to give her twice as much as the average. We're going to give her 12%. We give her 13, 13% increase. And we're going to say to her, you are amazing. We are giving you a 13% increase, twice as much as the average person in the company. Aren't you happy? She sucks by 7%. Right. And it's compounded because she's been there a year. And year after year after year, she's screwed. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And even if she goes to for a promotion, they're going to say, well, let's see, she's making 125 now. And the same thing's going to happen. <laughs> We're going to give her a big, fat bump right. to, you know, 134 and everybody right. else makes 160. I mean, you know, right. it's because they've escalated faster in their career probably than her. And, or right. the, my background's recruiting, so I'm I'm hardcore about this stuff. You yeah. want to you want to make a lot of money early in your career, change jobs every two years. Right, right. That's really the truth, right? Now, at some point, your ability is is going to play. You know, you're not going to know very much because you only hung around <laughs> less than two years at a bunch of companies right. with increasingly more important titles and bigger responsibility. And at some point, you actually won't know what you're doing, and then you'll plateau. Right. But that's that is the fastest way. If money is what drives you, then move right. And, and issue just sort of you, on recruiting and, and comp. The other thing you know, you wrote some interesting things about. I think the Netflix practice was let the candidate decide base pay versus options. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that was really and so controversial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell me more about that. I mean, was it like a one to one? Like Kevin, you can make. $150,000 base or every 10 grand of base you take away will give you 10 grand in options. Mm, here, here's what we did. Let's say your base is 100K. That's what your salary is. And your company has a bonus program and you're eligible for a 20K bonus at the end of the year. And you have stock options that you're a public company. You have four-year options, but I'm going to say one year's worth another 10K, right? Okay. So your total comp is 130. Mm -hmm. That's what your total comp is. So I might say, and so that's where, you know, you get in trouble not asking about pay because you, you actually shouldn't just ask about salary. You should ask about the whole package, right? right, right. So you kind of need to know that because that person who is making 85 might also have gotten the 
20K bonus or have been a co-founder and have, you know, 500,000 options, right, or something like that. Uh, which, b- by the way, five hundred times zero, five hundred thousand times zero is still zero. But okay, so so in that case, I might say, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to offer you one forty, and you should know that we require a minimum in salary because we want to make sure that you're eligible for disability and you can pay your medical benefits, and you know you should know that if you die, your life insurance is two and a half times whatever you choose, right? And you can slide if you want to take a lesson in pay, right? So we didn't give bonuses because we didn't want to hire anybody that couldn't make their bonus. So we rolled it in. I don't think bonuses incent people particularly, but that's Completely my experience. Agree. So you might say, you go, here's what's the thing. You go home, you tell your spouse, hey, listen, here's what their situation is. They're, they're, the total comp's going to be 140. Your spouse goes, 140! <laughs> 40% increase! because they think you're making 100 right and for many many people just that conversation blew their minds like Mm -hmm. oh oh i'm 130 geez that's that's a bigger number than i thought right right (laughs) Right? and the spouse is like take the money right (laughs) and and very much the reason why we did it was when we were writing the chapter on freedom and responsibility Mm-hmm. And we were trying to figure out how stock options should work. I realized that the four-year vested options with the one-year cliff are based on a retention model and golden handcuffs, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we do – everybody does options. And now RSUs are a mimic of that type of program that's going to retain employees. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, well, that doesn't jibe with – what I've said about everything else being a great place to be from. I mean, what if three and a half years down the road, you decide you want to leave. Now I'm going to screw you out of four years worth of vesting. And I said to Reed, I'm like, he goes, well, everybody knows, you know, you shouldn't have too much money in, in the company because like Enron, you want to be, don't want to be concentrating your own company, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, everybody doesn't know that, you know, yeah. and some people early in their career without a lot of obligations, they're willing to bet it. Right. Right. Go higher on option. Right. Yeah. What if they want to have a high risk profile and it works for their lifestyle? Who are we to tell them what's wise? Right, right. It's your money. We don't tell them what car to buy. Right. (laughs) We don't tell them whether or not they can afford that house. Right. And then some people have big, you know, we're in Silicon Valley. I'm like, you know, to be honest with you, when we came up with that program, it was at the end of the it was during the dot com bust the first time around and everybody was out of work. And I said, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people would just rather have the money. Oh, yeah. Pay the pay the big mortgage. <laughs> pay the big mortgage. But but it was more around, it wasn't a comp philosophy as much as it rolled into our whole management philosophy, mm-hmm. which is, why don't we let people decide what they want to do, right? And the deal was, I even wrote it in the first draft of the first quote policy. Right. And it, it said no whining. No matter what you choose, no whining. Like you, you could, I, I remember standing next to somebody one time, and our stock had moved from I don't know, had this huge run up, and it was a hundred dollars a share. We had hundred dollars share off stock, and I standing next to him, I'm like, oh hell yeah, you know, hundred dollars stock. What are you, what are you gonna get? He looked at me and goes, private school tuition. I'm like, 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like what you just said about that that policy. I think you could come out with like the director's cut of the Netflix deck, like all the things that didn't that's quite make the, that final. That's what the whole book is about. <laughs> it's the, the director's book. cut. You know, I should call that. I should call it the director's cut. I like Isn't it. Isn't that great? Yeah, so let, let me ask another detailed thing. So we, we've been talking about recruiting. We've got people, we've got great talent in. What are your thoughts on managing with with goals and objectives? Like uh, Google, they certainly didn't invent them, but they're kind of famous for their for OKRs, objectives, yep. key results. Others yep. do KPIs. You know, what, what did you use at Netflix or what do you think is effective in terms of cascading goals, metrics, any of that stuff? I'm glad you just reminded me what OKRs are because I always forget. <laughs> I guess you weren't using them. <laughs> yeah, I was like in KPIs, what's that? Key, per- key performance indicator. Right. Got it! HR, Bill. Um, I don't have any problem with any of that stuff at all. I think it's great. I think everybody should be managed with goals and objectives and they should have timeframes and they should have uh, be really clear about what goodness looks like. I think that sometimes we spend more time administering those programs than we do actually accomplishing them. So on all of those things, if we pushed it down to the local level where it was the manager's job to do a good job of setting goals and objectives. So I just, I mean, I fall asleep when people are describing those systems to me and the roll up and the roll down and the key in and the data. And, you know, I I had a guy trying to sell me his HR software one time. He had the whiteboard was full of all this stuff. And I said, okay. And then he's like, and then you'll have data. And I'm like, (laughs) Wow, that be okay. Well, and what am I going to do with that data? Well, you'll have it. <laughs> you know, HR doesn't have a lot of data. <laughs> like, you know, and then you'll know, you'll be able to map people's, you know, goals and aspirations to the objectives of the company. I'm like, oh my God, now I'm going to sit in front of my computer and stare at that screen instead of sitting down and going, why, why are you unhappy? Right. Oh, because right. you want to do this and we don't have that job for you. Okay, I know the software spit out that that's the job you want. We don't have it. <laughs> right. right. So right. that's just, you know, we over process. So keep it at a local level. You think, you know, a good manager, good coach is going to have specific objectives that. Back to the story I told you about Scott Bowman. Right. Right. I mean, are those KPIs or OKRs? I don't know what it is, but, right. you know, he clearly had a system. That worked well for him. He's the winningest coach in hockey history. So that story is in the book, too, about how we went out. We were in a hockey stadium. And when he came up on stage, this little 70-year-old man, like the place went ballistic. It was total standing O for Scott Bowman because he was this hockey hero. So, you know, that's – so I absolutely love clear, prescriptive, achievable, important goals with time, time, time. Right. So if you're in a junior, if you're a junior person in a startup, the thing that is really hard to do well is put time wrappers on stuff, yeah. right? So you can help yourself do that by asking, now, by when do you want this? I've heard this advice, those two words, by when, as very powerful words that uh, managers could be using. Uh, well, you know that old adage, those smart goals, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. Right. You know, you, don't, you, you should be setting goals using all of that. But you can be asking the same thing. Okay, I got that it's important. I got that you want me to drop everything else and do it because you want it right now. Like tomorrow? Well, no, I was thinking like next month. Okay. Or... Okay, you want it right now, you want it tomorrow. So you know that all those other things that you asked me to do, this, 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 aren't going to happen. We're clear on that, right? 
Okay, got it. It was clear on it. You, nothing else takes precedent. We've got to do this. We've got to do it right now. Why? <laughs> well, because you realize that the thing that you asked me to do yesterday that was really critical won't get done. And so this actually can't get done until that gets done. Just heads up. Right, right. <laughs> right. The, the relevant part. And um, by the way, I can do it. I can do it right now. I can do it right now. It'll be a piece of shit. <laughs> right? Because I'm going to hack it together and I'm going to do it to make the deadline, but I'm not going to be thoughtful and I'm not going to test it. <laughs> I'm just going to give it to you. So let's just both agree, <laughs> right? Specifically what we're going to do. And yes, I can do it. And this is why you're doing it. And this is the reason why, but you need to know what's going to happen to the quality when I'm rushed and have to do something by tomorrow afternoon. See, I just did all those OKRs in the questions I asked. Right. So when you're starting in your career to get the information that you need from management, you know, I always have all these HR people who, who will send all these notes out to all, but there's an HR group that I have that's kind of these renegades and they're like, None of my managers know how to do anything. They're all young and inexperienced. Who has a class that can teach them how to manage? You know, I'm like, <laughs> oh, God, you know, the way you manage the, the best class is to intervene at the moment. Right. And say, wow, we could do that better. Here's a couple of different ways to do it when you're doing it. Right. The best way to deal with conflict is when you're in conflict, not in class. Right. Right. right? And, and the story I just told you is. The better you are as an employee of expecting good management, the better your management will be. Oh, that's great. You know, I used to tell people when I promoted them, I'm like, congratulations on your promotion. You now have two things you didn't have yesterday. You have a new business card with a different title on it and you're psychic. <laughs> because now everybody, all of your employees are going to be like, well, he should know what I want. He's a manager. All right. 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 You know, yesterday you weren't psychic, but today you are. Today <laughs> you're supposed to know everything about everybody on the team because you're the manager. And it's just a different day. It's just a different day. Let me ask you a high level question as we wrap up. Did you have any inkling when when you were working on the policies, which we all outsiders know as the, the Netflix culture deck? I mean, did you have any inkling how big that was going to be outside no. of Netflix? No. When did you discover like, oh my gosh, this is like getting all these views on SlideShare or whatever, or people are now talking about it? True story of the Netflix culture day. Reed and I had done another company together and this time we wanted to create a place that we wanted to work at and I wanted to create a great company to be from. So we decided to write it down. Reed liked slide, he liked PowerPoint because that's how he thought. It's kind of like an outline form. Mm -hmm. So uh, he would come in with his PowerPoint slides and he and I would discuss it. And then we'd discuss it with our executive team and then the rest of the management team. And by the time we would actually publish something internally to the company, it might take a year. So it's written in chapters. Every chapter is written based on the chapter before it, it took 10 years to write wow. the slide deck. Okay. So like I couldn't actually do freedom and responsibility until I nailed high performance. Interesting. Getting high performance took about four years to get the right wow. recruiting team, to get the right train the people how to recruit, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So 10 years, Reed and I are driving to work one day. He goes, Hey, I met this woman last night who has this really cool company that puts um, PowerPoint presentations online. I'm like, well, that's a great idea. What are what people put out there? He's like, I put the deck out. I'm like, you what? <laughs> she, 
read. You can't. It's just the ugliest thing known to humankind. <laughs> I mean, I don't even think the fonts are the same from chapter to chapter. I think we change. Oh my God, no, the little yin yang symbol, <laughs> right? And and I said, and second of all, you're gonna scare away all my candidates. And he goes, only the ones we don't want. <laughs> <laughs> and it changed. It changed the way we interviewed that day. Wow. That day. I mean, because people would read it and come in and go, we don't get time off. (laughs) And it also created interviewing, created a bunch of massive rewrites. Mm. So the reason and what I would say to people is they're like, is this policy? I'm like, it's a PowerPoint presentation. You know, I don't think uh, I agree that you and Reed have told everybody they should go interview somewhere else. I'm like, well, it's not a command. (laughs) It's a slide. Do you disagree with the principle or do you disagree with how it's written? Because if you disagree with how it's written, rewrite it and send to me. I'll change it. It's a slide. (laughs) So we never, ever did it for anyone but us. Well, and that's a good almost warning. It's not that the ideas aren't wrong, but I think there's a lot of startups that think they can just like... (laughs) replace their logo on the Netflix logo on day one. They tell me it all the time. They slap it down in front of me and go, we want to do this. I'm like, all right, roll up your sleeves. Took us 10 years. Right. And it's it's evolving and it took time. Oh, by the way, they're still on it and I've been gone six. Yeah. And, you know, it's not what's in these slides. It's what's in what people do. And that's the biggest problem with copying the Netflix culture deck is that people do these beautiful slides they don't act that way. Right. And then you make it worse, particularly yeah. with technical people, because a, a geek loves a conspiracy theory <laughs> and they love a reason to be cynical. Right. And if you say, you know, we're going to be transparent and informative and you lie, right. oh, baby, all bets are off. Right. <laughs> That changes everything. Yeah, it changes everything. Addie, again, your new book is Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Tell everybody where they can find out more about you and the book. They can go to my website, pattymccord.com, and the book is on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and anywhere you get your books or audio. And we'll put all those links into the show notes and, uh, and the articles as well. Patty, thanks for coming on to the LeadX show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Lead X family, that wraps up another episode filled with leadership advice. But before I go, I hope you remember that at Lead X, we're on a mission to give free leadership training and professional development to everyone, anywhere, at any time. Visit leadx.org to check out our free course of the day and our weekly live webinars. And for your friends and colleagues who are managers, they lead people, let them know that they can get over 30 best-in-class management training courses on demand at their own pace at leadx.org for a ridiculously low investment of $7 per month. This is our public beta pre-launch pricing, and that quadruples really soon. Check out the LeadX Academy at leadx.org. And if you're the kind of person who always says thank you, then please take one minute, it's actually less than a minute, and go leave a rating for the LeadX show on iTunes. Just go to leadx.org forward slash subscribe, and it's gonna bounce you to the right page on iTunes. You can just click some stars, maybe click that subscribe button, and if you have 20 more seconds, you could write a one-sentence review of the show. It's the single best way for us to build our family. And of course, because leadership is influence, and we are leading all of the time, It's a question of, are you leading in a positive direction or a negative direction? 
I implore you to be mindful with your influence, to be mindful with your leadership. How will you lead today?